The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. New Year's. How do you define a New Year's resolution? One author uh, put it this way. By the way, we're continuing an unexpected series. It's called An Unexpected Disappearance. It says a New Year's resolution is something that goes in one year and out the other. Can you relate to that? I mean, that's pretty much the case, isn't it? Uh, Dear Santa, all I want this uh, 2005 is a fat bank account and a slim body. Please try not to mix up the two like you did last year. Anybody relate to that one? Uh, Number one New Year's resolution is what? It's the same one every year in America. It's to do what? Lose weight. I mean, that's that's the deal. I came here in 1981. My battle cry was 181 and 81. I think I weighed 181 in about the fourth grade, actually. Uh, this year, my battle cry is 215 and 15. And if you watched last year, I got really close to that. And then something began to happen. It went the other way. Now I'm north of 240 right now. And so I'm waiting for the year 2040 to meet my goal, actually, whenever that comes up. I do work out four or five times a week. I'm not sure it helps uh, when you eat about 30 or 40 times a week. And so my doc said, Gary, you're supposed to eat about every three hours. And I thought, well, that sounds reasonable, but... I don't know how to keep that many hamburgers, pizzas, chicken wings on hand to eat every three hours. And then he said, well, you're supposed to mix your plate up with a lot of colored things like reds and browns and greens. And so I came home and got a bowl of M&Ms and it went really well (laughs) for me. At my age, I gained three pounds chewing at an idea, actually. And uh, I, I, I told you I met my weightlifting goal when I turned 60 in November, bench press 305. I think I told you that, didn't I? And... uh, just checking. <laughs> and so now I've got a new goal. I've never jogged in my life, never ran in my life. I hate it. And uh, so there's something called Couch to 5K. How many of you have heard of that? Couch to 5K. I started Couch to 5K. I'm headed back to the couch now. <laughs> uh, actually, my goal, I want to run a 5K or jog a 5K by the time Easter gets here. It'd be a two-year diagnosis of uh, this melanoma. I need to lose about 30 pounds. And so I thought that'd be a good way to do it. Uh, so the first day we begin this journey, it's only, the, you know, you walk for 90, a minute and a half, then you jog for 60, and all of a sudden I felt my calf muscle just tear right in half and thought, at 60 years old, you don't start jogging. That's the lesson from that. So we'll see what happens over the course of the year. We all have New Year's resolutions, but uh, as we do that, here's my challenge to you. My challenge to you this New Year's is to read through the Bible. Uh, well, during the course of this year, there was a Sunday when I asked for a show of hands for folks who could honestly say they had never read through the whole Bible. And I would say at least 70% of us have never done that. There's, there's a Bible called the One-Year Bible, the One-Year Bible. And if you look at the One-Year Bible, you can get it from Amazon, you go to Lifeway, you go to Google, pick up the One-Year Bible. In fact, the passage I read came out of Psalm 145. Uh, this, this week is the week that you're at the end of the Psalms if you're doing the One-Year Bible. It's been several years a uh, number of years I've been doing that. And I would tell you, out of all the investments I've made, all the investments in my life, the greatest investment has been reading through the Word of God on a regular basis. Because as you do that, I can't tell you a single time uh, when one thing stood out more than another, but I can tell you the cleansing of the Word in my life day by day has been something that's impacted me for over 35 years now. And so my challenge to you is read through the Word of God. Pick up a one-year Bible. Uh, it's the Old Testament, New Testament, uh, a s- part of a psalm a day and a proverb a day. In the course of a year, you'll read through the whole uh, Old Testament, New Testament. You'll read the Psalms twice, and you'll read Proverbs, I think, about uh, four or five times. So 
just a good way and a good way to begin the year. So I challenge you to do that. If you want a resolution to follow, it's more important than a resolution, though. It's just something to honor God and to see your life changed by. So that, there's my challenge. Uh, losing weight and exercising, all that's good stuff. But as Paul tells Timothy, bodily discipline is only good for a season. And uh, he says, I buffet my body. I, I read that. I buffet my body, and I apply it that way sometimes. <laughs> But he says, I, I buff up my, I do what's right before God because it's the right thing we're supposed to do. Amen? Amen. Unexpected. Luke chapter 2. It's an unexpected disappearance. It's a little different. We spent the last month looking at the Christmas story, culminating last week by looking at the different responses to the birth of the Savior. Have you ever wondered what the childhood of Christ was like? Ever wondered what his home was like growing up? Ever wonder what kind of mother and father Mary and Joseph were to Jesus? Ever wonder what he thought and how he responded and how it was to play with him and grow up with him as a brother or sister? And I think we've all had those questions. Uh, the scriptures don't answer a lot of that. There's really only one episode in all of the scriptures from the childhood of Christ. And it's found in Luke chapter 2. Beginning in verse 39, it says, When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. And the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And his parents used to go to Jerusalem every year. If you write in your Bible, underline the word every year. That's significant. They went there for Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And his parents were not aware of it. But they supposed him to be in the caravan. And he went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And it came about that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had been in my father's house? And they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them, came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature. In favor with God and man. Little boy heard this lesson in Sunday school, six-year-old boy, and he said, how could someone lose God? How could that happen? How could they let God disappear? And so we look at this message and we call it the unexpected uh, disappearance. You could call it the missing Messiah. Father, as we look at this text, as we delve into the word, as we finish up the whole Christmas story by looking at this one episode into the life of our Savior. Lord, I pray that as uh, we look at this passage, you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and then help us to respond to truth. In Christ's name, amen. I picture the home of Jesus as a young boy, one that's filled with energy, one that's filled with kids, because we know Mary and Joseph had uh, other children. And so it's, it's a happy family. It's a family growing up in, in the Galilees. It's a family growing up in a fairly rural region. 
the days uh, were significant as Christ grew up, and I imagine he had a lot of questions, questions about Sabbath days, questions about the stories of the Old Testament, stories of, of Samson, stories of uh, the Exodus, and he would fill the night with questions until his parents told him to go to bed. But as Jesus grew up, his questions grew more detailed. He, he, perhaps he began to wonder about the suffering servant passages in Isaiah. And maybe now, instead of wanting to know the story of the Exodus, he wanted to know the story of the sacrificial lamb at the Exodus. And as he grew older, recognizing and knowing his role, I'm sure his questions begin to take on a different tone, a different meaning. And in verse 42, he's now 12 years old. He's 12 years old. Time has passed. He's grown up in the home of Mary and Joseph. And at the age of 12, he's no longer Mary's little boy, but now he's apprenticed his dad. We know that uh, Joseph was a carpenter. And by the way, in most of the pictures we see, we see Joseph handling wood. But if you've been to Israel, there's way more rock and stone than there is wood. Joseph was probably as much of a mason dealing with rock and stone as he was a carpenter dealing with wood. And so Jesus would been ta- have been taught by Joseph not only how to cut and measure wood, but how to chisel stone and rock. And so when we see Jesus... Growing up as a young boy, we can't fill in too many blanks, but we know that every young boy apprenticed under his dad in these areas, in this region, and so that's part of what he was about. He was a skilled craftsman, more than likely. And and as he learned the skill of his dad, he's at age 12. Now, that's a significant age in Judaism. It's a significant age because the age 13 is the age of bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah. Bar is the Hebrew word for son. Mitzvah is the word command. So he's the son of the covenant, son of the commandments, rather. He's the son of the commandments. He's a year away from bar mitzvah. And, and so as he would go to Passover with his mom and dad, I had you underline the words every year because Joseph and Mary were a devout family. Families would seek to go to Jerusalem for Passover if they possibly could, but it was 80 miles from the Galilees down to Jerusalem. And so most families would make that trek occasionally, but Joseph and Mary being righteous people, also raising the Messiah, it says every year they made the trek for Passover. And the week, the Passover time was also a lengthy time. It would stretch out for a week as they celebrated the feast as well. On these trips, you can imagine it would be like a great family reunion where people would uh, gather along the 80-mile stretch. It's along ravines and along rocks and along hills, and it would be knotted up. The women always traveled in the front, and the men would travel in the back. So they were two ends of the knots, and braided in the middle would be all the kids who were traveling along with them. It would be like a family reunion, friends and family and neighbors that you would catch up with on the journey. And for 80 miles from the Galilee, from the Sea of Galilee region, from Nazareth, from that area, you would journey down to Jerusalem, anticipating the week when you would celebrate Passover with friends and families, the high water mark in Judaism. It's much like this past week as you gathered with family and friends over the Christmas holidays and enjoyed time together. Likewise, that's what happened. Kids would skip rocks, they would throw them down ravines, listening for the echoes as they would bounce down the the hillsides. And it it was a grand time for kids as well as adults. During Passover, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that the streets of Jerusalem swelled to over a million people. Over a million people would be teeming the streets of Jerusalem. There were many sites. There were the sites of the sacrifices taking place. There were sites of all the people crowding into the various inns and places to say. There, there were the sites of people bedded down on the hillside. Animals staked to the ground. 
There were also the smells. Smells that would remind them, not only of the Passover of that day, but the Passover of years past. That there would be the smell of the, the lamb being roasted. A reminder of the sacrificial lamb that was offered on the great day of Exodus, the great day of Passover. There would be the smell of unleavened bread being baked unleavened because they had to leave the area so quickly to escape the, the, the Pharaoh and his Roman or Pharaoh and the Egyptian rule that they would take off into the, 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 the dead of night to escape his punishment. There would be the smell of the bitter herbs, a reminder of the bitterness of the times that they were in slavery in Exodus. And so the family gathered together for Passover. People would gather on hillsides and they would cook in their fire uh, over fires and in their pots. And you, you could smell these things wafting over the region. This is the setting. It's the only setting we know of the life of Christ. That's it. From his childhood. In verses 41 and 42, the devotion of Mary and Joseph stand out. It's made evident in these verses. As Luke is writing, he makes sure that we see it. The fact that Mary and Joseph made the journey to Jerusalem every year indicated their piety and their religious devotion. To make a journey of 80 miles annually would be a sacrifice. To close down his business and to head there for a week would be a true sacrifice. Mary and Joseph were good examples of faithful parents who honored God with their lives. They were faithful parents who honored God with their lives. That's who they were. And so you see these two faithful parents who are raising their son, God's son, together. You, know, you have to pause for a question as I look at the pause for a minute and look at that and ask a couple of questions. What about us? What are we modeling to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation? When I see Mary and Joseph, I, I see righteous people who are modeling truth to the Messiah. And so I have to ask us that same question. What are we modeling to our kids, to our grandkids? Do they see you in the Word? Do they hear you pray? What do they hear in your words when you're on the phone talking to friends, when your team is playing on TV? Or how do they witness you speaking to your spouse and with words of kindness or with demands or arguments or screaming? And what is the example you're setting to your kids as Mary and Joseph set to the Savior? And when you look at this particular passage, you recognize the great joy that we have of being, being a testimony to those that are watching us. Our kids watch our example just as they did there. Was, I forget who it was that said, train up a child in the way he should go, but make sure you go that way yourself. And it's so important for us to be that models. Jim Dobson said, children are natural mimics who act like their parents in spite of all our efforts to teach them otherwise. I mean, that's part of the way it is, isn't it? I ran across a, uh, the, I'm trying to think, Dennis Rainey and Family Life published a book on parenting a few years ago. In that book on parenting, there was an essay written by a young lady named Jordan. It was in 2003, actually, so quite a while back. And uh, it was sent in an essay submitted to the Minnesota Father of the Year contest, and she actually won. She says, the dad in my life isn't really my dad, he's my grandpa. But he's like a dad to me since before I was born. 
Four years before I was born, my real father left my mommy. My grandpa drove 400 miles to pick up me and my mommy. He took care of my mommy until I was born. When I came home from the hospital, there was a cradle that grandpa made just for me. Someday my kids will sleep in that same cradle because grandpa's given it to me. When I was a baby, I cried a lot at night. They called it colic. Grandpa would walk me around and around the kitchen table. He rocked me to sleep, and it was my first real babysitter. Now I'm older. I'm nine. I love that statement. (laughs) I'm now nine. Grandpa is my best buddy. We do a lot of things together. He takes me to zoos, museums, parks. We watch baseball games on TV. We eat Chex Mix when we're doing that together. Just the two of us. When I was four, Grandpa spent a whole summer building me a playhouse with a big sandbox underneath it. Tire swing that he pushes me on all the time. He pushes me way high over my head. He spends all his extra time building new rooms on, spent all his extra time building two new rooms onto his house so Mommy and I could have an apartment of our own. My grandpa is patient. He loves Jesus and he wants me to learn about him too. Sometimes people on TV talk about kids from single parent families. I'm not one of them because I have three parents in my family. My grandpa, my grandma, and my mama. My grandpa isn't my father but I wouldn't trade him for all the dads in the world. Wow. What a powerful statement from a young girl, nine years old. We have the privilege of modeling Christ to the next generation. How you doing? Mary and Joseph, every year it says, I've underlined it in my Bible, every year they went to the feast of Passover. They were faithful parents who honored God. They quickly became frantic parents who were searching for their lost son, though. I, I mean, if you look at the text, it says uh, when, the, when, the, when the feast was over, when the days were over, this is about a week long, uh, it says he became 12. They went up, and they're spending the full number of days. And then in verse 43, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And then the next phrase is interesting. His parents were not aware of it. Now, I just talked about their righteousness and what good folks they were. And some of you are saying, what kind of mom and dad is that? I mean, they, they are, they've got God's son uh, under their tutelage. And they're to be the parents of God's son. And they just left him in Jerusalem. They took off and left him. How could they do that? You ever do that? You ever, left a, you ever forget to pick a kid up at school or to uh, uh, that where they were? How many of you have ever done that in your lifetime, at least one time? Left a kid somewhere... Me and the rest of us are really bad parents, I guess. My hand is up. When Daniel was about uh, four or five years old, there was a couple in our church, Mike and Carol Harris. They've been with us for a number of years, elder here. They're now at Grace Bible where he's an elder. But uh, we had Sunday night services at that time, and uh, we were having dinner with them and then came to Sunday night services. And uh, uh, I walked in after Bev was already here. She looked at me. I looked at her. Uh, I didn't have anybody with me. She had Sarah with her. And I got the look. Guys, you know the look? Does your wife have one of those? My wife has a look, if you know what I'm talking about. How many of you guys' wives have that look? The rest of you afraid to raise your hands? A bunch of chickens. And I immediately knew what it was because I saw Sarah. I didn't have Daniel. And uh, I knew that I left him behind. That was not a good day. And so fortunately, they live less than a mile from church. I went hot-footing it back there. And here's Daniel, four or five years old, whatever he was, on the swing in the backyard. Didn't even know everybody had left him, just oblivious to it all. 
And uh, it was a cold night at our house, but Daniel was just fine. <laughs> Imagine you're the parents of God's son. Say, how could that happen? He was 12 years old. The men traveled with the men, the women traveled with the women, and the ladies were in the front, the guys in the back, family would be together, and it was that assumption, Mary, you got him, no, Joseph, you got him, and you can imagine that night when they sat, when they sat around the campfire. Joseph, where's Jesus? I don't know. I thought you had him. Uh, I don't have him. You can imagine them going to family members and to friends as part of that caravan. Anybody seen Jesus? Uh, no, he's gone. You can imagine as they went, as they headed back towards Jerusalem, their day out when they realized it happened that evening, it says that they realized it. And so one day out, one day back, and one day searching. I, I mean, it's amazing. It reminds me of a story of two boys. There were two boys who were incorrigible, and uh, they, their mom couldn't handle them anymore. They were both mischievous, and so she sent them to the preacher. Don't do that, by the way. <laughs> the parents were at Whitson. She sent the preacher, and uh, she called and said, I'm sending my boys to you. Can you do something with them? And, and so the oldest boy was escorted into the preacher's office, and uh, the preacher just looked at him, and he said, uh, Son, where's God? And he looked at him a second time. He said, son, I said, where's God? And he looked at him a third time. He said, son, where's God? And the boy turned around and ran out the office, grabbed his brother's hand, ran out in the street, started running towards home and says, somebody stole God and they think we did it. <laughs> That's kind of what this is like, isn't it? I mean, Mary, where's, it? where's Jesus? Joseph, where's Jesus? And, and they, they become frantic parents looking for him. If you lose something value, you frantically look for them. And that's exactly what happened here. You lost God's son on your watch. <laughs> Put that on your resume. Frantic parents searching for their lost son. And so they go looking. If you look at the text, it says they, they, they went looking and They didn't find him. They returned to Jerusalem, verse 45. It came about after three days they found him in the temple. So they're a day out, a day back, and one day of searching. I I mean, they go to merchants' doors. They go to friends' doors, maybe the area they stayed. And finally, finally, they go to the temple. And when they go to the temple, they see an amazing sight. They see their 12-year-old son sitting down with the theologians of the day, asking questions and answering questions. You know, this is one of those sections of Scripture where I wish we had more, don't you? Wouldn't you like to know the questions Jesus was asking them? I'd love to know. I'd be fascinated with that. Wouldn't you like to know the answers Jesus was giving to them? Wouldn't you like to see the looks of astonishment on their face as a 12-year-old boy was answering questions that perhaps they didn't have answers for? Well, the scriptures are silent. We can only speculate. We don't know what he says. But no doubt as God's son, Jesus had supernatural insight to come to this section. Well, next we see frustrated words from a worried mom. I mean, Mary is not this helicopter mom who parenting in fear. She's a concerned mom because her son has gone missing. And she looks at him and she speaks up and says, Son, why have you treated us this way? I mean, it's really an accusation, isn't it? 
It's an accusation. Why'd you do, why'd you do us wrong? Why, why'd you do that? Behold, your father and I had been filled with anxiety. The word for anxiously looking for you is to search frantically. To search for you. Ever search for something frantically? I, I, I think I told you a story years ago. Our family was headed to Ukraine, and on the way to Ukraine, we took a little excursus into uh, a few countries in Europe. And as we first got there, you go through customs, and I needed to buy train tickets to get to Amsterdam to our hotel. And I had a portfolio with all of our passports, all of our train tickets, all of our reservations. And when I got the train tickets, I just sat it down on the ledge right there, and then we went down to catch the train. As we got ready to board the train, I did what everybody else does. What do you do when, you, when you're traveling? Well, you hit your pockets to check and make sure everything's there. And that portfolio was gone. And my first thought was somebody pickpocketed me. And so I hollered at Bev and said, somebody's got all of our stuff. And then I realized I had set it down on that counter. I, you remember the uh, O.J. Simpson commercials when he used to run through airports? Okay. I, I, I was never that quick, but I'm, I hot-footed it through that airport as quickly as I could. And by God's grace, I walked up to that ticket counter, and sitting right there in that ledge, this is 15 minutes later, is a portfolio with four passports, all of our tickets, all of our reservations, and a bunch of money just sitting right there. And I said, praise God from whom all blessings flow, believe me. But I was frantically searching for that. I mean, I, I was on a mission to get there and get that. Can you imagine the mission these parents had? I, I mean, Jesus is missing, and they are frantic, and they, they, they can't wait to find him. And so she's frustrated, saying, why have you done this to us? And Jesus turns to her, and he's, he says, uh, didn't you know that I'd be about my father's business? Didn't you know this is why I'm here? Mom, don't you remember what happened 12 years ago? Don't you remember shepherds and magi? Mom, don't you remember Simeon and Anna in the temple? Don't, don't you remember, Mom, that the reason I was sent here was to do my father's business? And here we have an insight into the childhood of Jesus. That somehow he understood the unique relationship he had with his father. Well, interesting conclusion to the story. He gives him a frank reply, which we've just looked at. But the next thing is his faithful submission. Look at verse 51. He continued in subjection to them. He went back as a faithful son to mom and dad. And the scriptures tell us the Messiah grew up. He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Now, I'm going to tell you, I don't understand what all that means. I know in Philippians chapter 2, it says he emptied himself. I, I know that to be God, he still had to have all the attributes of God, but somehow he limited those attributes. So he grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. That is, he grew up. He grew in favor with the father, the father looking down, proud of his son who's doing his business. And he grew in favor with man because of the way he lived his life. And so I look at this passage and I say, why 
did Luke include this? Matthew, Mark, and John give us nothing of the early childhood of Christ. But Luke does. What's the point? I mean, why this sliver, this little sliver of evidence of the life of Christ? Well, if you look at it, there are two things that stand out. Number one, it shows us that Jesus' relationship with his heavenly father was unique. He talks about my father's house. So to call him my father, he had some understanding of the unique relationship, even at age 12, that he had with his heavenly father. Jesus knew and understood that he was sent by God. Here's a song we sing. We fall down. We lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. The greatness of his mercy and love at the feet of Jesus. We cry, holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lamb. You see, when you see who the Savior is, that's all you can do. Is bow down before him. He recognized who he was. Even as a tender young boy, he understood that. Secondly, Jesus understood that he had a clear mission. Didn't you know this is what I'd be doing? I mean, why didn't you just start here? Why didn't you come and look for me here first? Didn't you know this is what my life would be about? It would be about pleasing the Father. You see, I'm convinced that Jesus Jesus knew what he was sent to do. He knew as God's son that he had come as a sacrifice. And his mission was clear. And his purpose was clear. When he came to the end of his life, that's why on the cross, he could utter this word, tetelestai. One Greek word, tetelestai. Translated into English, it's finished. It's finished. It's a tremendous word. It was used in the Greek world to refer to a debt that had been paid. If you went to a merchant and your debt was paid, he, he would write on your receipt to tell us die. It's paid. Jesus says it's paid. It, it, it's a portrait that has been finished, and oftentimes an artist would step back and he could use the word to tell us die. It's complete. The work is done. And Jesus is that portrait that has now finished the work that God has sent him to do. To tell us die. It's done. And so our Savior knew his purpose, and he accomplished his purpose. What about you? John Calvin said it's better to live for Christ than to wish you had. What's your purpose? No one can go back and make a brand new start. Anyone can start now and make a brand new ending. And we should say thank God for that. See, as the calendar turns a page this week and a new year begins we can't go back and make a brand new start but we can do this we can change by starting now and we'll have a brand new ending so as I look at this passage I have to ask you are you doing the father's business See, Jesus was unique as a Messiah, no doubt. And God doesn't call all of us to be preachers or missionaries. But we're all called to do the Father's business. 
You are ambassadors for Christ. You're to be about the Father's business this day and every day. David Livingstone was a man who wanted to be about the Father's business. He dedicated his life to serving the Father, and he did become a missionary, although it wasn't the highest calling in life for anyone. I mean, it doesn't mean everybody's got to be a missionary. He did become a missionary. And he took the gospel to Africa. One day when he was a teenager, he and his brother sat on the steps of a, a, London, uh, a London home. And they said they both wanted to be physicians. The elder brother said he wanted to be a physician so he might become famous and wealthy. Uh, Livingstone said that he wanted to be a physician so he could take the gospel to Africa. Well, he accompl- they both accomplished their purposes. David Livingstone's a name synonymous with missions in Africa. Today you can stand by the graves of David Livingstone and his brother. In a David Livingstone's tomb, it's written, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. His brother became one of the royal surgeons of England, famous and wealthy. Livingstone was a missionary. You know what his brother's tombstone says? Here lies the brother of David Livingstone. There's nothing wrong with being a famous royal surgeon. But if you haven't lived your life doing the father's business, and I don't know if he did or didn't, I don't know the rest of that story. But no matter what you do, whatever it is, we need to be busy about doing the Father's business to honor him. So as the page turns on this new year, my prayer, my prayer is that you'll walk with the Savior, honor the Savior, and do the business of the Savior. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Father. Thank you for fresh starts and new calendars. For new years and opportunities to walk with you and honor you. Thank you for these dear brothers and sisters, many of them faithful in that arena. And if you know Christ and you're not walking with him, not living your life for him, let me ask you this question. What really matters? What matters? What matters? And if you don't know Christ, what a way to start the new year. To celebrate by being a new believer in Jesus by placing your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sin. Father, this day, we honor you. We thank you for this little sliver. In Christ's name, amen. You're dismissed.